Hey guys, I am so glad that you just heard the details about what we're planning for Christmas Eve. It has been in the works for a long time. We've been working with the town. Super excited that we're gonna get the, keep the tradition of, of Mendham Hills and gathering on Christmas Eve night and how magical it's been for so many. Look, is it gonna be cold outside? I know some of you are going, well, outside it's gonna be cold. Of course it's gonna be cold. It's December. That's why we watch those Hallmark movies and we love to see them walking around outside. That's gonna be us. But we sit outside for football games in the winter. We can sit outside a little bit uh, for Christmas Eve. And so really excited um, to, to be part of that with you. Make sure you go and get your reservations. It's gonna be safe, it's gonna be fun, and it's gonna be worshipful. I don't think you could have a better Christmas Eve. Can't wait for you to join me there. Now, I have a friend, Marie, who started a year or two ago on social media, an album that she calls, and maybe your friends would are on social media too, The 25 Cocktails of Christmas. Every day in the month of December, she posts a picture of some of her finest mixology. Just in the last couple of days, these delicious-looking drinks have included the cinnamon roll cocktail, the white Christmas sangria, and the infamous eggnog martini, which, believe it or not, at least looks better than it sounds. Marie, I know you might be watching. One Christmas, you're going to get a pastoral house call, and it's going to coincidentally be right around happy hour because I want to try one of these things out. Guys, the concept of a Christmas cocktail, it's actually not a recent discovery. I want you to know that there's actually a would-be Christmas cocktail that plays a very poignant role in the very first Christmas. A Christmas that, as we discussed last week, was a lot like Christmas 2020. It was for everybody that was there that first Christmas night, for everyone involved, neither a holly nor a jolly moment. And the night was far from merry and bright. And why? Because that first Christmas, it seemingly came, as we saw last week, at the wrong time to the wrong people and in the wrong place. At that time, it would have felt like, well, it would have felt like the worst Christmas ever. Of course, time has taught us otherwise. Now, if you were with us last week, you know a couple of the reasons why Matthew, this Jewish tax collector, a man who had been considered to have been a traitor to his fellow Israelites, yet a man whom Jesus, and this is crazy in its own right, a man whom Jesus called to be his disciple. Think about that one, right? Jesus chose not to just associate with Matthew, but to be intimately involved with him, to, to trust his story and his movement to Matthew. It actually foreshadows a lot about the redemptive work Jesus came to do. Well, this Matthew, in, in writing his gospel account of Jesus' life, about 50 years after Jesus' death, in writing it to an audience of his fellow Jews, Matthew begins not with Mary and Joseph and wise men, but with, as we looked at last week, a lineage, a, a genealogy. And it's because Matthew wants his readers to understand that Jesus' birth that first Christmas night wasn't just a moment in time or a standalone event, but it was actually the culmination of a millennial long promise that most thought would go unfulfilled and, and many, frankly, had given up hope for. But as we discovered last week, God is always at work in all things and in all ways, in all times. And when his timing, while his timing might not be our timing, while it might make no sense to us, while it frankly might seem late or impossible, it is, as it turns out, perfect. Jesus came that night, not just at any time, but as the Apostle Paul would later write to the church in Galatia, when the set time had fully come. And so with that discovery and understanding, Matthew now continues. 
Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, we'd read that in our contemporary culture. We read it kind of like they were engaged. But in, in first century Israel, it was so much more than that, guys. A betrothal actually involved not two people, but two families that had entered into a very formal contract that was as binding as marriage itself. Betrothal actually was more of a, a business transaction between these two families than it was a, a personal romantic choice. Betrothals were often part of an arranged marriage. It's, it's likely Joseph and Mary don't even know each other all that well in the early part of the Christmas story. As part of any betrothal, dowry agreements were included so that if there was any kind of a broken engagement, it would require repayment of any dowry. After the betrothal, all that remained to happen were three things. The wedding celebration, the bride's move into the groom's house, and the consummation of the marriage. Like marriage, there were only two ways out of a betrothal, death or divorce, which is what makes this next line that Matthew writes so troubling. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And you think your Christmas season in 2020 is off to a rough start. Merry first Christmas, Mary and Joseph. You see, the circumstances of Christmas 0001 are pretty similar to this year's. Mary's pregnancy, kind of like our pandemic, is unexpected and definitively unwanted. But the truth of this story is even more interesting if you understand what Matthew is focusing on here, which is Joseph's backstory. You might know a little bit about the Bible, and if you do, you know that there are not a ton of details regarding Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. But Matthew's next sentence describes him so significantly, we tend to read right by it. Now remember, Matthew, himself a Jew, is writing to a Jewish audience who would have likely understood at deep levels the message Matthew is trying to convey regarding Joseph. He writes, and her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man, a righteous man, and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, or as many other translations put it, to divorce her quietly. You see, Joseph is, according to Matthew, and this is a big deal in the story, stick with me, Joseph is a righteous man. But what Matthew's telegraphing to his audience is more than that Joe is like a good, kind, or moral guy. The Hebrew word for a righteous man there is Sadiq. Joseph, Matthew is telling us, was Sadiq. Sadiq in Matthew's day, that was a formal label. It was like an official title someone carried. Sadiq was a term that applied to, to only rare people that studied and learned and practiced the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They practiced them all the time, scrupulously. And they believed that they should be applied to all levels of life, every nook and cranny. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, he describes in further details what Matthew's audience now would understand about Joseph. For example, being Sadiq means that Joseph wore phylacteries, those little boxes of scripture up against his head and around his arm as, as was commanded in Deuteronomy 6. When Matthew tells his audience that Joseph was a righteous man, he's telling them that Joseph wore a prayer shawl at all times as commanded in the book of Numbers. A shawl with tassels from every corner, each tassel tangibly reminding him of all the commands that he had to obey from God. 
When Matthew tells you that Joseph is Sadiq, he's telling you that Joseph had this long, never-trimmed beard that would have set him apart as different and holy, just as Leviticus 19 commanded. As a Sadiq, Joseph would have covered his right eye and he would have prayed the Shema, the great prayer of Israel, twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as a Sadiq, you can bet Joseph had a copy of this prayer rolled up and nailed to his doorpost. If Joseph was a Sadiq, as Matthew writes, then he gave out of his poverty to the temple treasury anyway. In fact, he traveled the 91 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem every Yom Kippur to have a scapegoat bear his sins away. He practiced religiously his piety before others so to remind them that God had called them to be perfect as God was perfect as a Sadiq. There were certain things Joseph would and, and would not do. He, he didn't violate the Sabbath, for example, no matter what. Joseph never ate any unclean food. For that matter, Joseph didn't eat with any unclean people, Gentiles or outcasts or sinners. You see, when Matthew tells you that Joseph was a righteous man, he's telling you that Joseph was one of the rare few who could be called righteous because they lived the righteous law of God to the letter, every jot and tittle. If the Torah commands that you care for the immigrant in your land, well, then a Sadiq does just that without questioning. And if the Torah commands that you avoid and dare not touch a leper, then a Sadiq obeys and, and keeps his distance. In Israel, in Matthew's day, after being a priest, there was no greater honor than being given the title Sadiq, a righteous man who follows every letter of God's righteous law. And guys, that's the incredibly complicated dilemma that Matthew describes now regarding Joseph. Because it's not just that he's righteous. He is a Sadiq. It's, it, it, it's who he is. It, it, it's his accomplishment. And it's his identity. It's who he is. It's who he wanted to be. It's how people thought of him in his small town. And it's also a real problem right now because this Sadiq is engaged to a woman named Mary. And Mary's pregnant. And he's not the father. I mean, of course he's not. He's a Sadiq. And so now, guys, the Torah for Joseph was clear. According to the Torah, unfaithfulness during the engagement period was actually considered adultery. Actually, according to the Mishnah, which is a Jewish commentary on the Torah, infidelity during that betrothal period was thought to be a graver sin than infidelity during marriage. You see, according to the law in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, here's what Joseph must now do. Quote, she, in this case it would be Mary, shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She's done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you. Now, it's interesting. If they're on her father's steps, if Mary were to protest for her innocence, my guess is she'd try to, to relay to the men of the town her story about being pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, I would imagine after laughing at her and, and condemning her once again, they, they would follow what the book of Numbers commanded take place were there not two witnesses available to say that Mary had committed adultery. They would take Mary and her pleas of innocence now before a priest. For? Well, they would take her for that drink I spoke to you about earlier. What I described to you is that very first Christmas cocktail. Let me show you what I mean. Joseph's righteous responsibility, now according to the book of Numbers, is this. 
The priest now shall bring her, in this case it would be Mary, and have her stand before the Lord. And there he shall take some holy water and place it in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. Then the priest would put Mary under an oath and say to her, quote, if no other man has had sexual relations with you and you haven't gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, well, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you've gone astray while married to your husband and you've made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, may this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. And then Mary was to say, amen, so be it. And, and now, finally, with, with, with all of these technicalities, formalities now over, the priest, with the woman now terrified, the priest would take the accusation and the paper it was written on, and, and the priest would take it and he would mix it into the waters, along with the very ink that he used to mark what she, was being, what she was being accused of. And he would mix it. And then he would command Mary to drink it. The bitter waters. If it makes her sick, she's guilty and she'll be stoned to death. If it somehow doesn't make her ill, well, then she's innocent. Her life will be spared. Though, guys, let's be honest. In Mary's case, her life is still ruined because she's pregnant and Joseph's not the father. She's going to be considered a sinner. Specifically, she would have a name now attached to her in her little small town. She would be Am Haaretz, a term that was reserved for people like lepers and tax collectors and, and shepherds. Am Haaretz, were, they were the complete opposite of Sadiq. And, and if Joseph were ever to decide to go through and marry Mary under these circumstances, an unwed mother pregnant by someone else, that then would make Joseph Am Haaretz too. And you see, all of this is rolling around in Joseph's head because the Torah is clear. The right reaction for a man of Joseph's position, accomplishments, status, identity, the right words were not just simple. They were required. Drink up, Mary. This was what was known as the bitter waters. This was to be Joseph's cocktail of choice for Mary that very first Christmas. Except, that's not what he says to her, and it's not what he does. See, that very first Christmas, Joseph makes a very different, a very prophetic, and a really costly choice. Was it an easy one? Well, I hope having heard this now, you can appreciate that it was not. See, we read it like it was, but it wasn't. In fact, in, in verse 20, Matthew tells his audience, quote, but when he thought this over, that root word in the Greek there is thymos. It can mean to ponder or to think over, and it can also, though, mean to become angry. It's actually the same word Matthew uses just a little bit later in the same Christmas story to describe King Herod's anger at learning the Magi had escaped him. So it's not like Joseph is happy about his dilemma. He's angry. His wife-to-be is pregnant. Is he happy? No, he's human, and he's upset. 
He's likely, and Matthew doesn't tell us for how long. We read it like he made just a snap decision not to follow the Torah, but just to put Mary away quietly. No, no, no. He's likely been wrestling with what to do ever since Mary came to him with must have been perceived by him at least initially to be some crazy excuse. Guys, I know many of you know the Christmas story, but I know I've never pondered this before. The gospel writer Luke in his account of this, tells us that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You're gonna conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. Of course, Mary asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Now get this, Mary finds out about God's plan from the angel Gabriel. Mary finds out about God's plan before she's pregnant. I know personally it would be much easier for me to accept the plan and will of God if it came delivered to me before it happened from an archangel. Do you know how Joseph first found out about God's plan? Yeah, that's right. He found it out from Mary. Now, I know that we venerate her, but, but, but at the time, Joseph, with that story, to him she must have appeared to be less than a, than a reliable witness. And thus his struggle, it is only now, it is only sometime later, after Mary has come to him with her seemingly crazy story, that Matthew tells us, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John Ortberg asked a wonderful question about this very moment. Well, then I think we need to be asking ourselves in our moment about Christmas 2020. When everybody around you is telling you that this is going to be the worst Christmas ever, he asks this. Why did God make Joseph wait till after he had to think and struggle with all of this stuff? Why couldn't an angel come to him ahead of time and explain everything just like he had to marry and remove all of Joseph's anxiety? Is it possible that anxiety removal is God's, not God's number one goal for Joseph? And this Christmas maybe for you and me. Is it possible that in Joseph getting his world turned upside down and having to struggle between what he thought a, a Sadiq, a righteous man, ought to do and, and his longing to show compassion to a young girl, maybe Joseph was being prepared by God to come to a new understanding of just what righteousness is. Guys, is, is, it, is it possible? Is it possible there's a ministry of disequilibrium God is allowing to take place in Joseph's life so he's going to enter now a new era of growth. Guys, this Christmas, is it possible in our lives? Maybe right now that he's doing the same thing. If you're confused, disoriented, disappointed, frustrated by all of the uncertainties and differences of this Christmas, maybe it's not because God has forgotten or abandoned us to an unforeseen circumstance, to a pandemic. No, 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 maybe, just maybe corporately, maybe societally, maybe together, God is giving all of us the very same gift he gave to Joseph the very first Christmas. This gift, 
as underappreciated as it is right now. This gift of disequilibrium. Maybe we're all about to grow or change or at least be given the chance to. Maybe what you and I need to do is to wait on God and trust that God is going to do something in our lives, in our world, even when we don't know about it yet. You see, God's, God's continued ministry of disequilibrium in our lives, it often gets accomplished through what many have referred to as divine interruptions. Joseph's life, right, as a Sadiq, is about, he's about to experience one giant, massive, life-altering, divine interruption. His work, his plans, his hopes, his dreams, his accomplishments, his identity, all of it divinely interrupted. It's not just Joseph, though. Heck, go through the scriptures. These divine interruptions are God's way of changing lives and families and cities and cultures and worlds. You need look no further than the genealogies that Matthew opened the book with. Abram, go and leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Moses, go confront Pharaoh, lead your people out. Joseph uh, finds himself at the bottom of a well. Jonah finds himself inside a well. Mary finds herself pregnant. The apostle Paul finds himself blind on the side of a road. This is how God works. God brings disequilibrium into our lives through a ministry of divine interruption. And you know, you know what's our problem so often? We are a people who hate to be interrupted. I mean, I have dreams and plans and goals and I'm very busy at accomplishing those things. There are things that I want to achieve. I only live once. I've worked hard. I've dreamed about these things. For most of us, there's nothing we fight harder against in our lives than interruptions, even if they're divine. We insure against interruptions. We, we overcompensate to make sure there won't be any interruptions. Heck, what do we teach our kids from the time they're little? Whatever you do to mommy and daddy, don't interrupt. Look, look at our story. Crazy thing about divine interruptions. When they happen, they usually feel like anything but divine. In fact, that's the first thing I want you to notice about divine interruptions. They often don't seem divine at all. But if we just keep pushing ahead all the time and fighting for our plans and our ways and our identities, we might just miss what God has for us. I mean, Joseph would have. Mary would have been drinking the bitter waters that first Christmas. I came home this week, I was working on this talk, and my daughter Caroline was sitting in the family room picking her classes for next semester on the computer, and she was super frustrated because the one that she really wanted was full. And so she was going to have to take another class, which was at an inconvenient time that she had no interest in. It was right then, in her super aggravated moment of frustration, that I tried so gently to introduce her to, to the possibility of God's ministry of disequilibrium through the path of divine interruption. It didn't work out well for me. I was less than successful in that moment. Maybe there's a lesson there for all of us. Maybe we need to be thinking about the possibility of, of disequilibrium, uh, of divine interruptions before the moment strikes. You see, the first thing about a divine interruption, they don't tend to appear as divine. Ask Joseph. Divine interruptions come with losses and hurts. Oftentimes, we see them as accidents or disappointments. They can, they can kind of rise up through an illness or a job loss. If you find in your life your spiritual equilibrium to be a bit fluxumed, 
like so many of us find this Christmas, God might just be up to something big in your life. Now, the second thing about divine interruptions, and Joseph shows us, is that we need to see this, maybe now more than ever, this about divine interruptions this Christmas. No doubt about it. You feel it. Divine interruptions have costs. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, why would Joseph be afraid to wed Mary? You know why? Because it was going to cost him something. Joseph was going to lose his reputation. Joseph knew what everybody was now going to think about him. Joseph knew about his own doubts when Mary told him what the angel had said. There's no way people in town are going to believe an angel came to a poor couple in an obscure village and caused the conception of a child in the body of a virgin teenage girl. Joseph knows if he marries her, his friends are never going to believe him. He's not going to be invited into their homes anymore. He's, he's, he's no longer Sadiq. They're not going to transact with him. His business would suffer. He's never going to be admired in town again. He's never going to be respected as a lover of the Torah. If Joseph commits himself to this baby, to the one who would be known as Jesus, he's going to do so at an enormous sacrifice. His whole reputation, the work of his lifetime is going to get trashed. Of course he was afraid. Guys, hear me. Divine interruptions always have a personal cost. But Joseph did it anyway. If actually, actually, truthfully, he did two things. First, he took Mary home as his wife. That was a legal step. Many was publicly claiming her as his wife. And, and then Matthew tells us that when Mary gave birth, quote, Joseph named him Jesus. That's a legal action. In the act of naming the child, Joseph's publicly adopting this child as his son. One writer put it this way, Joseph has now deliberately tied his destiny to the lives of two stained reputations. Joseph has made a decision that will awe anybody who comprehends it. Now his days as Sadiq as the righteous man are over, and whatever the future holds for him is not going to be polite respectability. Some scholars, this is really interesting, actually believe you can see the cost Joseph pays later in the story. Mark records that people in discussing Jesus' wisdom say, quote, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Please note, in Israel at that time, a man in Israel was always referred to as the son of his father. For Jesus, it would have been Jesus bar Joseph. To refer to the man as the son of the mother often was a harsh, it was a crude expression, something akin to today calling someone a son of a you fill in the blank. Some believe that this reflects even decades later, not just years, decades later, Joseph's reputation still isn't recovered from his marriage Guys, divine interruptions often don't seem divine. Divine interruptions come with personal costs. But divine interruptions, if they're embraced, they have the potential to bring about such profound and generational change. I heard it put this way. Maybe God decided that Jesus, who would be called a friend of sinners, should be raised in a family that knew firsthand what it feels like to be regarded in the spiritually second-class category. Maybe part of why Jesus had a heart for, for unrespectable people is that he was raised by a father who sacrificed his respectability for his son. Maybe one reason Jesus had compassion on women who were walking scandals as, is that he knew what it meant for his mother and that, that his father had stuck by her when she was single and pregnant and when all the righteous folks seemed to have just taken a walk. Our faith teaches us that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And thus it was God's son, Jesus was God's son, but he was Joseph's boy. 
who one day had a group of experts in the law when he grew up, Sadiqs that came around to him, and, and they came up carrying stones at a woman that they had actually caught in adultery. She's guilty. There were witnesses. And Joseph's boy knows what the Torah commands, like his father. He could probably cite the chapter and verse. But what does he do? Joseph's boy looks down at the ground and responds, whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. And when he looks up, all the Sadiqs have now left, all their stones on the ground. Joseph's boy kneels down and looks the woman in the eyes and says the opposite of what the Torah commands. I do not condemn you. Like father, like son. You see, one day Joseph's boy meets a woman at a well. Even though it's almost dark and the Torah commands that they shouldn't even be talking to each other, especially at night, Joseph's boy sits down next to her and does just that. Many of you know the story. She's had five husbands. The man she's with now, she's not even married to which according to Torah makes her guilty of adultery. According to Torah, she's the exact type of person who deserves to be given this Christmas cocktail, the bitter waters. But instead, Joseph's boy offers her something that sounds like the opposite of bitter waters, living water, like father, like son. Joseph's boy, one day, he invites himself to dinner at a tax collector's house where he's seated around a table eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors, people who were all considered just like his mom and dad, am ha-aretz by every good Jew in town. Scott McKnight makes the observation that it's here where Jesus uses the word disciple for the very first time, but quote, I can't help but wonder if maybe Joseph boy was the first disciple. I can't help but wonder if maybe he was an apprentice in more than just carpentry. And of course, it's super interesting, right, that Matthew, the tax collector, who focuses on genealogies and Joseph, that's his focus when he tells the story of Jesus' birth because Joseph's divine interruption made a place for Matthew, the tax collector, at Jesus' table. Divine interruptions always seem less than divine. They always come at a personal cost, but they have powerful potential for generational change. And lastly, there's this, divine interruptions. Divine interruptions are invitations to abandon your own ways, to embrace God's plan for your life. But the invitation must be accepted. You've got to RSVP. Perhaps the most powerful line in this whole story is right after the angel comes to Joseph in his dream, quote, and Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph did as he was told. Joseph accepted the costly invitation to a divine interruption in his life. Guys, this is the story of Christmas. Divine interruptions, emotional, spiritual disequilibrium, that's the Christmas story. This is why Christmas this year at one level makes more sense than on a, and any other Christmas year. It's been interrupted. You have been given a great, great invitation. You need to RSVP. It's your choice. You, you can drink the bitter waters of what should have been, what could have been, what was required, who should have been there, the way it should have gone down, all the things that you've done and earned. Or this Christmas, maybe just like that first Christmas, 
maybe church, we could be a little bit more like Joseph. Maybe a little bit more willing to be open to change, to, to seeing things differently, people differently, ourselves differently. To believing that God has placed us right here, right now, at this time, for this moment, for this cause, because he's up to something in us. He's up to something with us that has the potential for personal and generational change. And all we have to do is believe. You see, this Christmas, it turns out, it really is the story of two cocktails. Will you drink of the bitter waters of your old ways? What you had to have, who you had to be, what you needed to happen or accomplishments, your old ways, your old plans, your old identities. Not just for Christmas now, but for your life. Or will you use this Christmas in the midst of the disequilibrium? Will you choose instead to drink of the living waters of Christ? Freely offered to you and maybe seen like never before in the midst of divine interruption, which is the power to change your plans, your hopes, your dreams, your beliefs, even you. What God did with Joseph that first Christmas, I can't help believe he wants to do with us this Christmas. Does it come with a cost? Of course it does. Joseph could tell you about that. Heck, Joseph was, was just the first of millions who have given up identity and reputation to follow Jesus. But when Joseph did it, he hadn't even seen Jesus yet. This Christmas, we live in the, the, the light of the other side of the story, in, in light of all that Jesus has done. And God is giving us all a chance like never before to embrace this divine interruption in our life. I love how Bonhoeffer put it, quote, we must be ready to, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will constantly crossing our paths. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans. This Christmas is an opportunity to reorder our priorities so that we might be more able and willing to hear. It's a chance to to desist from judging ourselves against others, to break free from going down the same old road of perceived success and five-year plans. God's shaking the foundation of our heavily scheduled, over-busy, inattentive lives. This Christmas, in this moment of divine interruption, ask yourself the question, what is he stirring in you? What is he stirring in you? And when you feel it, when you, when you experience the disorientation, then church... Do what Joseph did. Go where he goes. Do as he leads. Make sure, make sure this Christmas you drink the right cocktail. It's a new one. And I'll see you back here next Sunday morning.